I know I still have the advantage, but I also know it's not over until it's over. I just, I knew I just make 16 need at least a birdie to win the hole. And then 17 and 18, I'm, I'm just, my goal is just make a par. They're tough birdie holes, so he's he has to make a birdie to, to beat me on the hole. We both hit the green on, he hit the green first on 17, and I followed up by hitting the green, and we both two-putted for par. It's, that's a pretty tough green. And then on 18, I put it a little bit closer in his approach shot for both our birdie putts. And when he left his short, then I was told after the round my putt was to tie the course record, but that wasn't what I was focusing on. I was focusing on the match. You want to make it, but I barely got it to the hole. You don't want to like blow it by three feet and then have that putt to, to win the hole. Hello, Falcon fans, and welcome to another episode of In the Bleachers podcast. This is a podcast dedicated to sports here at Xavier High School with athletic news and updates from around Connecticut. Get ready to join Matt, Dan, Greg, and Tanner for your weekly dose of sports news, as well as tips, tools, and strategies to help you become a success in the classroom, in sports, and in life. What's up, guys? Tanner here, and welcome to the second episode of In the Bleachers podcast. On this week's episode, we get an update from Matt and Dan about the return of high school sports in Connecticut and also some news on some facility renovations that have been taking place at Xavier. We interview the Connecticut State Golf Association amateur champ, Xavier alumni, and Xavier golf legend Chris Fosdick, and we also debate the most impressive individual records in sports. And then Matt Martorelli, Xavier High School athletic director, closes off the show with his words of wisdom segment. Hope you guys enjoy. All right, welcome back. Uh, episode number two of In the Bleachers. It's uh, certainly exciting to be uh, where we are today, filming our second episode. I bet no one thought we'd be able to even get one episode in, but here we are with episode number two. Dan, what do you think? How was your response to the to the first episode of In the Bleachers? It was awesome. Uh, you know, I love listening to it. Um, I sent it over to to Scott Massey. Uh, so that he could listen to it, and uh, he thought it was great. And, um, you know, I, I was surprised hearing that we had over 400 views on it already. I was I was kind of shocked by that. And so that, that that sounds promising for the future of this uh, In the Bleachers podcast. You know, the power of social media, I think it's uh, people underestimate it, but when you, you show people what you're doing, you're kind of a little bit outside the box. So not, not everybody's doing a podcast. Uh, you know, I think that, you know, people want to want to want to hear what we're doing, you know, and and enjoy hearing people, you know, banter back and forth about different topics. Um, again, kudos to you for winning the first ever uh, win, lose or draw. Still waiting on that trophy. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see when we can get it. So, yeah, talking about the power of social media, you know, and I know, Dan, you, you were able to follow along with one of our, our co-hosts who's here with us here today. Tanner, obviously, Tanner did, you know, uh, quite a feat this past month. So since our, since our last podcast, for those who were unaware, Tanner ran from, from Canada to Bloomfield. Dan, I don't even know if I could even drive from Canada to Bloomfield. How about yourself? <laughs> I'm with you on that. No, that's uh, I mean, that was something like what, 240 miles he, he, he ran. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. Yeah. You know, it, it quite a feat, obviously had overcome a lot of adversity throughout the, the whole trip. But Tanner, can you fill us in a little bit and, and recap that whole event for our listeners here today and, and explain why you did it and, and some of the struggles that you had throughout throughout uh, throughout that run? 
Thank you, Matt and Dan, for the introduction. I really appreciate it, and I'm glad I'm able to recap this run because that means I'm home safely with no injuries, and that's always good after undertaking such a crazy challenge. So from June 12th to June 18th, my cousin Jordan and I ran from Canada to Connecticut to Benefit Food Share, which is a food bank supporting the greater Hartford area. We got the idea to do the run because of the uncertain times that we're living in right now of COVID-19. Food scarcity skyrocketed since the pandemic hit and food shares bills have gone up by $100,000 per day. So we wanted to do what we could to help. Thanks to the support of tons of donors and so many people in the Xavier and Mercy community, my cousin and I were able to raise close to $16,000, which is amazing. And I can't thank everyone enough who donated to the cause. $16,000 can provide close to 35,000 meals for people in need. So it was a really successful trip financially. Now it was a little harder physically. Uh, we went through some really low moments and some really tough times, but we were able to get through it. Uh, we averaged about 35 miles a day. Uh, the first day we ran 45, the second day we ran 35, uh, the third and fourth day we ran 40, the fifth, sixth, and seventh day, were a little shorter, fifth, five, and six were 35 each, and then the seventh day was 28 miles, and we finished at Food Share's office in Bloomfield, Connecticut. The distance in total was 260.4 miles, and every single bit of that 260.4 miles was a grind. One day we got attacked by a dog, another day we almost got hit by a car, Another day, I couldn't walk with 17 miles to go in a 40-mile day, but the whole theme of the trip for me and Jordan was just find a way to get it done because we were helping so many people, and we did. And it was a magical finish. I can't thank everyone in the Xavier Mercy community enough who supported me on the journey. I just want to give a few quick shout-outs. Thank you to Matt Conyers, the head track coach at Mercy High School, and Chris Stonier, the head track coach and head cross-country coach at Xavier High School for running the last mile with me and being at the finish line to support me. I also want to thank my fellow co-hosts, Matt Martorelli and Greg Jascott, for being at the finish line. It was great to see you guys. I didn't expect it, and that made it so much more special. And the photo we all got together of all my buddies from the Xavier community, I will cherish that forever. So guys, thank you so much. Now, I'm a 2015 graduate of Xavier High School, and I definitely would have not put my body through this run if it wasn't for everything I learned at Xavier in regards to service and giving back to the community. Xavier instilled the need to serve in me from the minute I walked in the door as a freshman, and it was just so special to have the support of everyone in the Xavier and Mercy community, considering my running career started at Xavier. As a coach, actually, on the football team on Saturday mornings, I would go and run after games on a Friday night before film. So that was really cool to see everyone there from Xavier and get all the well wishes from the community. So I can't thank everyone enough. So that about covers it for my brief recap of the run. I'll send it back to the guys and we will get into the rest of today's show. All right, and uh, Tanner, that's that's amazing what you've been able to do for the that community, the food share community. It's astonishing. We're so happy for you. We're so proud of what you've done. But we've done a lot over, you know, since our last episode. And the summertime is one of those times. It's a quiet time at school. And you would expect during a pandemic, it'd be more quiet than it is normally. But I don't think that's necessarily the way it is this year. Dan, you want to start us off with a little bit about what's been going on at Xavier over the summer? Yeah, I mean, you know, like you said, usually those those last few weeks to June and those first couple of weeks of July are usually a, a dead period around school. Um, but uh, we've actually been very busy. and. 
you know, Matt and I have been attending uh, weekly meetings with the CIAC and, and staying up to date on rules and regulations regarding uh, playing sports and the coronavirus and uh, the opening of school. So Matt and I have been attending those meetings uh, on July 6th. Yeah, just yesterday. Uh, which was just yesterday. Our kids were allowed to uh, come back to campus and start working out. But, um, you know, there was a lot of regulations around that. And, and you know, they have to be in a, a group of five to ten. And that group of five to ten has to be the same amount of kids, uh, the same the same exact kids in that group of ten uh, for the next four weeks. And they had to be assigned a coach. Um, so we've had to set up uh, our, our family ID registration. We had to ask our families to sign in on family ID. They had to fill out um, a bunch of questions related to COVID. Um, we had to assign those kids to the groups with their coaching staff. Um, we've had to give out the, the rules and regulations about uh, drop off and, and pick up and, and the social distancing that needs to take place. Um, disinfecting uh, the equipment that they're going to be using. Uh, I think one of the biggest challenges, and, and credit to, to Andy Guion and, and some of his football coaches, they moved a lot of the free weight equipment from our weight room, because the building is closed, out to their back practice storage facility uh, so that they can use those, those free weights uh, as their athletes start to condition. You know, everyone's had to get very creative throughout this time. And, and you're right with Andy and, and the staff over there. They've done a, a great job trying to, you know, uh, change direction quite quickly. And, and, and I, we're really focused on conditioning. But at one point, Dan, there was talk of, of skill development in this. And really, you know, it's, it's interesting how quickly we've had to change direction in such a short period of time. Um, from the, the the ability to have that skill development to now it's that's off the table and it's really just the conditioning over the next you know at least four weeks you know um, so it's been it's been a it's been a challenge to kind of create a plan when we haven't really known exactly what that plan's going to look like yeah that's a that's a good point I mean we were we've been in meetings we were going through meetings uh, with the CIAC and so we had let our coaches know that it looked like they were going to be able to do some sport specific skill development. And then uh, just last week that all changed and, and it was decided that we were going to uh, eliminate the skill development. So we had to sort of go back to the drawing board and replan a little bit uh, what that was going to look like. But um, you know, our coaches have been flexible and, and following along with the process and they've been able to adjust on the fly too. And um, you know, the daily screenings of the athletes showing up uh, after one day um, seems to be going well. So uh, hopefully things continue to move in the right direction as we get ready to uh, start our fall sports season. Uh, I think August 3rd, hopefully, is when the new guidelines will come out and maybe these groups can go from 5 to 10 to 10 to 20. So that would be a positive, uh, that would be a, a sign of moving in the right direction for us if that takes place. Yeah, or more, you know, and, and I think as we, we get closer to August 17th, which is the start of football in the state of Connecticut, you know, I think that as we get closer to that date, you know, we're, we're going to have that skill development piece back, you know, and it's because of all everything we're doing now to make sure that we have that those chances to, to get back to a norm. I mean, it was what a March, March 10th, we were supposed to have our last or what would have been our next athletic event at Xavier. And we've had nothing, you know, so to finally get something 
where it's the conditioning and yeah, it's not going to look normal and kids are going to be six feet, seven feet, 10 feet apart, whatever it is, you know, it's something and to be able to, to, to get back with these kids and, and motivate them and condition them and just really have them back on campus so we can, you know, go back to some sort of, of, of norm, you know, I'm eagerly awaiting this vaccine. I can't wait till we can get back in, in, in you know, in full force and, and really not have to worry about this anymore. It's been, a, it's been a struggle. It's been a struggle for us. It's been a struggle for the coaches. We know it's been a struggle for the kids, and we're just happy that we can have something to give back to them. The kids, uh, the kids are ready. The parents are ready. I mean, I was surprised when we opened up Family ID and sent that message out that first day. Uh, I think we had over 70 people sign up on that first day that we sent that, that message out. So In the first few uh, hours, yeah, we were joking. Chomp, these people were chomping at the bit for something like this. So it's been great. And to see the numbers where they are now, I mean, some of these numbers are, we have more kids signed up for these sports now than we did in, in, in previous years. You know, yeah. as, you know, we have over 100 athletes registered for, for football for summer conditioning. And you know that there's not not we're not going to have 100% participation from the program just yet. So it's, it's I can't wait to see what that number looks like come come August 17th. You know, yeah, certainly exciting to uh, to have everybody back and, and see the the participation over the summer. It shows promise for the fall. Certainly does. Certainly does. Now these are the changes that we're making, and this is what the activity that we have on campus now. Over the last few weeks, we've actually made some improvements to our facilities as well. I know that uh, we actually brought our, our gym floor back down to the to bare wood, repainted. It's got a couple minor changes uh, in what the actual gym core gym gym floor looks like right now. That's all already. That's just back up and running. Um, you know, and we're eager to to bring people back into the building so they can you know, see what, what those changes look like. But outside as well, we've had some changes, Dan. You want to talk a little bit about those? Yeah, thanks to uh, a couple generous uh, donors, we were able to get two play clocks uh, for the football field. There's one that is uh, fixed directly underneath the, the scoreboard, and then there's another uh, portable one. Those two uh, play clocks look absolutely beautiful, and, and we're very thankful to the, the generous donors that, that made that happen. And um, in a couple of weeks from now, we are going to be resurfacing and relining uh, our, our track, uh, which needs it desperately. Um, and I can't wait to see what that looks like. I'm sure it's going to be beautiful. Yeah, you know, we're obviously, you know, in, in talks with, with our, our track coaches, making sure that we're, we're getting all the, the proper lines down. I know when the, when the track was originally done, we were missing a couple uh, of the lines when they were actually spray painted on, believe it or not. Dan. I don't know if you remember seeing that I they do yeah those are all going to be permanent fixtures on that on that track moving forward and you know it, it, it's an exciting it's an exciting process you know and I think that the the track actually has to be shut down for a couple weeks obviously um, it, during that meantime but we have plenty of, of fields field space at school to make sure that we're really not interrupted um, regarding our, our conditioning and everything else that's going on on, on campus but it's exciting um, it certainly is exciting. I hope everyone is is excited to come back and see all these changes. In just a few minutes, we're going to have our second guest of In the Bleachers. This is going to be a, a Xavier alum, a recent alum, and also a, a new champion in, uh, in uh, Chris Fosdick, the CT amateur golf champion just a, a couple weeks ago. Uh, it was an exciting moment. And Dan, you saw Chris as a student at Xavier. 
And I don't know how much interaction you've had with him in the in the last year, but what do you what do you remember from Chris? What are you most excited to 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 talk about? Uh, well, I mean, the Chris is just such a nice kid, and uh, he's so easy to talk to, and uh, it's just he's a lot of fun to be around. Number one, um, he obviously is a is a huge golfer, um, and and when he was at school, I ran the intramural golf program, so I got a, a chance to go out and play with him a little bit on. Uh, the Apple Nine uh, over here in, in Middlefield, and um, even though that's a small course, just watching him play and, and what he could do with the ball is is unbelievable. Did you ever play, um, so did you ever play him straight up? No, yeah, not even. It wouldn't even be close. It wouldn't <laughs> even be fun for him. Um, but uh, it's very impressive to see what he can do and, and to watch him play and just to watch his his work ethic uh, out on the course, and then. Number two is, you know, uh, golf is one of those games that, that everybody can play and you can play uh, well into your older years. And so just to, to, to know the game of golf and to be able to talk to somebody uh, at his level about the game of golf, I think is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, well, I, I'm certainly looking forward to this, uh, this interview and, and have a chance to talk to him. You know, it's not every day you get a chance to talk to a, a champion of golf. Um, and I think, you know, hopefully one day uh, as time passes, I hope he continues on his, his golf journey and, and, and we're looking, looking at him, watching him play on Sundays and, you know, for the PGA Tour and whatnot. And maybe even one day at, the, at Augusta, you never know. That would be awesome. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. Thanks again for joining us. Today we have our guest on today's In the Bleachers podcast, Xavier Graduate of the class of 2019 from Middlefield, Connecticut. Chris Fosdick joining us after a big win at the Connecticut Amateur for golf, obviously, last week. And we're here to talk to him a little bit. Welcome, Chris. How you doing? Great. How are you? We're all doing well here. And, Chris, I, I think it's it needs to be said, obviously, you spent the, the your freshman year playing golf at Florida Southern College, and you've now made the decision to go off to UVA, University of Virginia, to the golf program. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey through golf and what's eventually gotten you over to the University of Virginia starting this fall? Yeah, so I started my freshman year at Florida Southern, kind of an automatic spot every time, every tournament that I played in. And you want to play in every tournament, but that's something that I want to kind of work for. I feel like if I'm not working for it, then you kind of take it for granted and then you might stop practicing as much. So I, I want to be part of a program where there's other, the spots aren't like set in stone. You have to qualify for every event, work for it. Just, and I feel like if I have to do that, that can kind of prepare me for later in life. My goal being a professional golfer. Great. I saw obviously one of your first rounds at uh, down at Florida Southern, you shot two under par. Can you yeah. say, you know, that being your, your first collegiate golf event, did that help kind of propel you into to realize that, hey, I can take it to this next level and be successful? Well, yeah, that, it, that does help. But I, I've always had this vision in my head for as long as I can remember. As a little kid, I wanted to play professionally. And my first collegiate round, there was a little bit of nerves going on, but I still I was able to fight through that and have a solid round. And it, it helped a lot that it was at – course called Beth Page Red. So they have the PGA champion. They had the PGA championship last year on the um, Beth Page Black, and it's in New York. And I've played tournaments there in the past. So it's kind of like all these tournaments I played in for school. I never played any of these courses except for that first one. So it kind of kind of gave a home 
field advantage, even though I've only I've, I've played there a handful of times, but it's still it was it was nice playing on kind of grass all around the country is different. And that's the same grass as here at home. So it, it was a good start to my college. Well, that's career. a great way to, to, to kind of start it off, obviously. And and I'm sure, you know, coming in, I, I saw you finish fifth in that event, too, mm-hmm. probably against uh, athletes who have been competing at that level for quite a few years. And and to, to really just make a name for yourself, I think that's a great way to, to get your collegiate career started. And I know um, we're going to have some questions coming up about your preparation for those. Uh, Dan, do you want to start kicking those off? I do. But before I start kicking those off, I just want to ask Chris, uh, none of us on here have ever been at the ranks that you've been at. When you have a, a collegiate golf tournament, like you said, you sort of had an advantage because you you're familiar with New York and the grass and, and you've played that course before. But, you know, when you play a course that you haven't played before, I know there's so many times I've played courses where I, I look back at a certain hole and I go, man, if I knew that's what it looked like, I would have played that differently. Yeah. Uh, do you guys get the opportunity to to walk the course or, or, or play around before you, you actually have your match? Or is it just, are you in the middle of a match when you realize, oh, wow, that hole looks differently than I thought? Yeah. So funny enough, this past tournament, the, the Connecticut Am, I – I kind of like, there's an app that I have on my phone that kind of gives you GPS flyover of the, of the course and you can kind of get a feel for that, but you can't really see elevation and whatnot. So I kind of went into that blind and I didn't play well for my, for the stroke play part of the event. And then the match play, as I started learning the course, I, I started playing better, but for, for most tournaments and for, for college in particular, we got a practice round the day before the tournament starts. We also, we have these books, they're called Straco books. It's really, it's what the pros use on tour. They, since they can't use a rangefinder, they have like, this book has specific numbers and which way the greens are going, like the, the slope of each like hill on the greens. And they're really- I've, I've, like, I, don't, I don't understand those books, but I've seen yeah. them. So we, at, at Florida Southern, we would go, before we go to the tournament, we would all kind of, we we'd have a meeting and then the coaches, obviously he's seen the course in the past, in past years. It was new for me, but um, he, we'd kind of go over it and like strategy wise, what you want to do on each hole. So you kind of know what you're doing even before you go into the practice round. And then you really kind of solidify what you're going to do for the tournament. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure having that, that opportunity to walk the course or play the course beforehand makes a big difference when it yeah. comes time to, to play. Can you talk about just sort of what is what is a practice routine like for you? I don't have the best practice routine. I I'm kind of I'm one of the guys that would rather just go out on the course and kind of learn how to hit shots on the course rather than go to the range. You should do both, but I play way more than I should compared to how much I'm on the range. I'll work on numbers on the range or I've been I was just started getting lessons again. I hadn't taken a lesson for like four years or so until just recently. And I've, I've taken about three so far down from this pro at Great River down in, in Milford. He, he's really good. His name is Tom Rosati. And we've, we've been working on my swing, like my takeaway and making my whole swing, making sure it's on plane and just more consistent than it was before. So I, I think my game with that has improved and gotten more consistent but my practice routine like I I have this I'm really fortunate to have this 
computer. It's called a TrackMan for golf. I need to use it more than I do. And that's usually used mostly on the range, but you have to find like a good range and good golf balls to do it on. So it's, it's, it's a process, but I, I, I need to use that more to help out my routine. A couple of things, Chris, you know, when I was thinking about what questions to ask you, I, I, I thought a lot about how I coach quarterbacks and we talk a lot about visualizing things, you know, with quarterbacks. How, how do you go about whether it's on the range or on a course, how do you go about visualizing, you know, that a specific shot? Yeah. So obviously you have to be like really confident, but for, for visualizing it, if it's a full swing shot, I'll kind of, you'll, I'll pick out a tree or something that I want to start it at and then kind of pick out an ending spot, whether I'm hitting a cut or a draw. If you pick a really specific spot, your margin of error is probably going to be less than if you, if you just look at a fairway and say, I want to hit the fairway, you're not really picking a specific spot to, to hit and then who knows where it's going to go. But so I'll visualize that shot on a tee, but more so with short game, like I'll pick a landing zone for a chip thing and I'll like, I'll visualize it where it's going to land and then watch it break or wherever it's going to break into the hole. So it kind of gives you like, you feel like you've made it before you actually hit the shot and it gives you more confidence going into that shot. And um, I guess on a, a little bit of a different topic, and maybe it's more of a range, you know, when you're at the range question, how, how do you go through your bag when you're at the range? I mean, is there like a, a specific routine that you follow each time you're at the range or is it something where you practice situational type shots at the range? Is it, you know, can you talk about your routine at a driving range? So, so it's different for, for a tournament, right before a tournament, if I'm warming up for a tournament, I'll, I'll usually hit like every other club. So if I started at 60 degree, I'll go 60, 52, then I'll go nine iron, seven iron, five iron, three iron, and then I'll hit all my woods, four wood driver, or I'll go like 56 pitching wedge, eight iron, six iron, four iron, and a four wood driver. So, and then sometimes I'll like, I'll start with a short iron instead of with a wedge and then I'll finish the, with a wedge. It's for me, it's more like, it's kind of superstitious. Like if I start, if I, if I do it one way and I play well, I tend to just keep doing it that way because it worked that one time. So I don't have anything like specific and that's something I should probably have more of a specific, but when I'm practicing, like, it's just, I might try to struggling to hit a draw, which I have been with my driver. I'll try to like over-exaggerate it and try to hit a hook and then work your way back. And that, that's something I, I tend to do. Yeah, no, that was funny that you said that was my next question is, you know, do you change your routine based on how you play in that specific round? And, I think it's always good, you know, regardless of whether you're, you know, an athlete, a coach, whatever it may be, is you, you kind of always have to be looking at ways you can improve your in your preparation. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like you do that, and it's, you know, sounds like based on how you play that day or if there's one specific thing you're struggling with the most, I think is a, you know, pretty good way to approach it. Yeah. I mean, even, like, brushing my teeth a certain way can be super <laughs> before, before I play. <laughs> um for a tournament and they're just stupid little things i don't know why but yeah <laughs> uh, it's a it's, it's more normal than you think <laughs> yeah chris are you superstitious um in in certain things like not when i'm not really when i'm on the course maybe my routine but not not when i'm playing what athlete isn't superstitious a little bit inside whether it's their routine or the their 
for me, the hockey stick, the way they tape their side, I think every athlete has something that they're superstitious about when they play. I think a lot of coaches probably do as well, you know, if you, if you look at it from the other end of the spectrum as well. Well, I'm wearing the same socks that I wore the first uh, podcast, so there's a little <laughs> bit of, of me that's superstitious as well. That's why we got 400 views on that first podcast, Marley. There we go. Chris, <laughs> Have you have you listened to our? Did you listen to in the first episode of In the Bleachers? No, I didn't see it. I, I yeah, I Chris, didn't. Chris, I, I was I was a big fan, and now I, I don't know I don't know what to do. I'm I'll have to watch it after this. That just means we're going to four hundred and one views. That's right, Dan. <laughs> where there's opportunity for growth is what you're telling me. Martorelli, you got to step up your social media game if he <sighs> couldn't see it. Listen, you know what? The, the website hasn't launched yet, Chris. We're <laughs> opening uh, XavierFalcons.com. Okay. Uh, in, in about a month, so uh, something to look forward to over here. Yeah, I'll take a look at that when you guys start it. <laughs> I would fully expect that Mr. Martorelli will have a Chris Fosdick story as the lead when that website launches. Uh, I don't know how we can't. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's he's the headlines for sure. <laughs> I, I, Tanner, I know you, you want to get in. I just have a quick question just in regards to uh, – I know we were all talking about practicing for a second, and it would be, uh, you know – appropriate I think to ask I mean have you had to make much of a change in your practice and your in your games under this coronavirus COVID-19 have you had to change anything up I've been really lucky so I'm a member at Wallingford Country Club and when they were when the government was threatening to shut down the courses in Connecticut I guess what my course was saying was that the members own the course so they can't really shut down the course as a private course so I've, I really, I've been able to just play as much as I, as I can at, at Wallingford. So I, I've been pretty lucky with that. As it comes going to other places, it's been like not as much as normal maybe, but playing at Wallingford, I've been able to play pretty much a normal amount. Do you play with the flag I, stick I, in or do you just take it out still? Yeah, so we've just been able, we've just started being able to take the, to be able to take the flag out. And I, I hate putting with the flag in from like 10 feet. It's just mentally and like, you can't be as aggressive with your putt because it could bounce out. And it's just, I, I just don't like it at all. So I, we've been able to, in phase two, we've been able to take the flags out and they put the rakes back out for the bunkers. Ever since the Travelers pre-qualifier I played in, when they, that's when we started taking out the flags, and I think I've taken it out every single hole since then. But, yeah, it's so much better. Not Mr. DeConte. I watched him last week drain two 30-foot putts back-to-back. He didn't even have an opportunity to take the flag stick out. So, if you're looking for lessons with that, just, just talk to Mr. DeConte. So, Chris, first off, uh, congratulations on the big win. That was fun to watch on Twitter. Yeah. So I played golf yesterday, and a good round for me is definitely not a good round for you. I got a couple pars, a few bogeys, so that was a good day for me. But, you know, when I'm playing golf, usually if I'm on a hole and I, you know, I have one bad shot, it tends to turn into another bad shot and another bad shot. I can't seem to break that pattern. So, you know, obviously you're, you're an amazing golfer. You know, you've got a ton of accolades, but we all have bad days, right? So when you have a bad shot, what's going through your mind to – not have a bad shot again and, you know, turn the round into something more positive. Yeah. So for me through like just playing a normal round with my friends at, at my home course or compared to playing in a tournament, like I can be a hothead and I'll get pissed and like really just like yell at myself or (laughs) I can throw clubs too. I, I do not do that in tournaments 
my mental game in tournaments is a lot better, and that's why I think my game is better in tournaments. My maybe my better round, my my best round won't be as good in, this, in a tournament as when I'm just at my home course playing. But my worst round um, will definitely be better than when I'm just playing just for practice sake. I just you just have to know, even if you hit a bad shot, I know I can still get up and down and save par on the hole. So you you kind of what Tiger Woods says, like he, he'll give five, he'll give himself either, I forget if it's five seconds or five steps before he has to completely forget about it and move on to the next shot. But you, you just have to, you just have to move on and, and know yourself. And even if you make a bogey on that hole, then you have to like, you, you know, you can make a birdie on the next hole and come back as long as you're mentally not, frustrated with yourself gotcha so when you're playing with someone in a tournament how do you control your emotions because you know when you're playing with someone obviously if you if you start you know losing control of yourself you know they're going to know that you're rattled so when you do hit a bad shot how do you stay under control and so you don't give off any signals to your opponent that you're uh, feeling the pressure a little bit yeah you know i just like tell myself that you're you still there's a ton of most of the time you still have a lot of golf left. Like maybe you're halfway through the round and you just have to like trust yourself that you're going to come back. But you can also like, I can use a bad shot as motivation to come back and hit a, a bunch of good ones coming in and get that one shot back and even more shots back. So like this past at the Connecticut and my final, the final match, I, I didn't play I didn't play amazing the first round. I didn't play bad. I felt like I was playing bad just because Cody was playing so well. And I was just frustrated with myself because I kept making pars. And I, I said to myself, par isn't good enough. You're not going to win a hole with a par. But at the beginning of the front nine, he made, I think he made four birdies in a row or three birdies in a row or something like that. And I just kept making pars. I went from all square through nine to three down through 12 really fast. It's just, I got frustrated with myself. And my friend was on the bad caddy for me. I played with him at Wallingford a lot. And he could tell that I was getting frustrated just because I was losing holes. And he said, you still have a ton of golf left at the time. It was like 24 holes left or something. You, you can get on a hot streak and get all those holes back and even get a lead. So that kind of calmed me down. And I, I said, like, I just, I, I know, I just don't want to lose any more holes. Like I don't want to fall any further behind. And I was five down with 20 to play. I knew I needed that. I couldn't <clears throat> fall further than that. So I needed to step on it. And I, I was lucky to get to three down with 18 to play. But yeah, you need to mentally just tell yourself you can still recover. Yeah. Now, how do you sleep at night when, you know, after first, the first round and things aren't going your way, your opponent's playing great? Well, how do you sleep at night knowing that you got to keep uh, – keep the foot on the gas the next day and make up some ground. Yeah. I mean, you, you have no control over what that person does. You just have to strategy. If it's a match play event, not how it works for stroke play, but for match play, you just have to play smart, make pars, make the occasional birdie and make, he has to make birdies or an Eagle to beat you on the hole. So make him work and he might start getting frustrated of not winning holes and that's when they make mis- that's when you make mistakes and that's when you get the advantage there 
Awesome. Thanks, man. Chris, you, you talked a little bit about playing in the Travelers qualifier, and obviously you had to make the decision to withdraw from that to pursue the Connecticut Amateur. Probably a pretty tough decision. Maybe you can talk us a little bit through that. And obviously, you know, having a chance to play in a professional match, you recognize that it's probably more important for you to play in the Connecticut Amateur for the long run. And can you talk us a little bit about what that means for you as far as your, your amateur ranking and what, what's up next as far as that's concerned? Okay, so for my decision, yeah, it, it was tough. My I shot a three under with a triple bogey on my 18th hole for the pre-qualifier. And so I was six under with one to play. And the 18th green at the course, it's called Ellington Ridge. It's a crazy green. It really needs to be just redone because <laughs> nowhere on the green like is flat. If you're above the hole and I was over the green, you're just you're pretty much screwed. And yeah, not my best short game performance on that hole and I made triple, but I knew I'd have to shoot something like minus the last hole, six under or something, to qualify for the travelers again. And if if it was at, if there were different times, I would have played in both. And if I had to pick either playing in the Connecticut Am or the Travelers, then I would pick the Travelers, no doubt. Like, that's just an experience of a lifetime, especially as a 19-year-old kid. But I, I'm trying to – like I, I was saying before the podcast, I'm trying to work on my amateur ranking. And playing in a professional event doesn't help your amateur ranking at all. So I, I knew I just one, – one, so one guy at the uh, – part of the CSGA – He's one of the head guys at the CSGA. His name is Mike Morgan, and he used to he, – he was the head coach at UVA before the current coach, and he, he was emailing me, and he was like, you better pick the Connecticut Am. And I was going to either way, <laughs> but he gave me a lot of reasons on why to pick the Connecticut Am instead of the Travelers, so, or the Travelers Monday qualifier. So I'm – at this point, like, I'm, I'm happy I made the decision, <laughs> obviously – yeah, I, I just need – I hopefully – I don't know how this is going to affect my amateur ranking, but hopefully it, it helps it a lot. Hopefully I get a lot of points from it. Now, will you get – do you get pre-qualified into the U.S. Amateur from winning this one, or is that something you still have to work no, on? I, I don't really know all, like, what I qualify for or what, or, or what with, this, with this tournament. Hopefully I get into some stuff. I'm sure some, some tournaments, some bigger amateur events, unfortunately a lot of which were canceled for the year because of COVID – but hopefully this gets me into bigger amateur events and so I can keep improving that amateur ranking. You look at someone like, uh, I think it was Victor, and I'm going to pronounce his bat, is it Hovland? Hovland? Uh, yeah, Hovland, yeah. You know, and, and he was, I think it was two, three years ago, he was the one who won the U.S. Amateur. And now to see what he's, he's doing on the tour, I know he's one of the favorites, I think, for this upcoming week with the Rocket Mortgage. You know, it's, it's amazing to see where someone can come from so quickly, you know. And I think that's exciting for, for you. I mean, you're 19 years old and you have such a bright future ahead of you. And you just, I think, it, like you said it right, you, you kind of have to make some decisions. Might not be the one that gets you to your dream right away, like playing in the Travelers, but you make a decision what you feel is best for you long term. And I was almost thinking to myself, why would the, the Travelers qualifier and the Connecticut Amateur be on that same weekend? And maybe it's something that's, yeah. that's always the same way, but you would assume that you have some individuals that want to participate in both. So yeah. I hope that in the future you don't have to make those decisions and you can, uh, you know, participate in both. And, you know, you never know. You're playing some great golf last week. 
So it's one of those things, you know, if you were to play in the travelers, what would have happened, you know, and yeah. you never know, you know, we're yeah, only, only five under qualify. I mean, maybe when I played the pre-qualifier eight under made it I mean, eight under was the lowest round to get into the Monday qualifier and only five under qualified for the travelers. So, I mean, I'm assuming the course is playing tougher, but just based off of what I did three days before that, or however many days, four days before that, I I feel like yeah, I could have I could have qualified. But yeah, I know I definitely made the right decision in the long run to prepare me, give me more experience for upcoming events and experience, confidence. You yeah. to, your confidence has to be at an all time high right now, which is yeah. Obviously in golf, like you said before, you have to be confident when you're making shots and to do what you just did, I think really sets you up for, for great success in the future. Yeah. Just uh, Chris, to follow up a little bit on, on Martorelli and, and Tanner Kern and their questions, you know, you talked a little bit about, you know, your caddy sort of settled, settling you down and, and knowing that you, you know, talking about your shots and just knowing that you can recover um, being down five strokes. Did, does that change your approach to the game? Do you get more aggressive or do you just sort of stay course and just be confident in what you can do? Yeah. So I definitely get more aggressive. I mean, so 18, the 18th hole, after I made par on 17 to get to four down, the 18th hole, everyone, you look at the hole and you're like, I'm just going to lay, lay up, hit like a three iron, driving iron or hybrid off the tee. And when I, I beat a member at the course, the round of 16, and I beat him like six and four. But he, he's a really nice guy, and I, I continued playing after I beat him so I could get more of a feel for the course, kind of learn more. And when I was in 18, he came back out with a cart, and he gave me the advice of hitting driver off of 18. It looks really narrow, but it's, it's really the play. And during the 36th hole of the final, I hit driver in the left bunker, but like it, it's really not a bad spot to be in, especially if your fairway bunker game is, is solid. It's it's a pitching wedge or nine iron out of there. And for me, that's kind of an easy shot out of a fairway bunker. But it kind of hitting the driver there, and that, that's more of an aggressive play. And then also the adrenaline was really pumping on, uh, on the first hole of the second, of the second round. They're, they reannounced our names. They said Chris Fosdick from Wallingford Country Club. And then they said um, Cody Palladino, your 2013 champion from – from Farmington, from the Country Club of Farmington, and I kind of smiled because I, I had confidence. I, I, I felt like I'm going to come back and I'm going to beat him. And the first hole is like 500 yards, par five, and I had 188 in. The course was dry and the ball was going really far. And I had one, I had 188 in for my second shot. I hit a seven iron to like four or five feet, and I beat his birdie with an eagle. And actually later in the round he made Eagle on 16 to beat my birdie, which that was like 15 or 20 feet. And that was probably one of the most clutch things I've ever seen. And I was just like, wow. And I knew I still had the advantage with two holes of play being one up, but I, I definitely got more aggressive that, so that second round. That's actually a great lead into to what I wanted to ask you about. I thought it was 15 where he, he gained a stroke back, but it sounds by talking to you, it was 16. 14 so, and 16. So I birdied nine to get back to all square with him, the the 27th hole of the of the final, and I birdied 10, 11, and 12. So I birdied four in a row, and I he also birdied 12. So I was two up, and then 13 long par three, 
220, I think it was seven yards that day. And I hit a – the ball was going really far. I, was, I hit like a choke down four iron. And I kind of – I hit it to 20 feet, kind of lagged my foot up there and made made a par. And he had like what you call a toilet bowl about for, uh, for par. And I guess he was asked after the round in an interview like, do you think that putt would have made the difference? And he said, no, I, he like, he argued the opposite because that putt he argued gave him like, it made him press more and be more aggressive. So the next hole is a drivable par four and he got aggressive and put it right next to the green, got up and down for birdie. And now he's down to two down. And then 16, he made, I went four wood off the tee. It's kind of a weird tee shot. You can't really see where you're going. He hit a three wood. And I hit three iron in and he had uh, like a three hybrid in or something or four hybrid. And I had like 25 feet for Eagle just off the green. He had 15 or 20 feet. And then I kind of, I got it close, make sure I had an automatic birdie to make him, he had to make Eagle to win, win the hole. And he made the putt and gave it a big fist pump. We were just throwing fist pumps back and forth. <laughs> That's awesome. So what those, those last fifth, uh, 16, 17, 18, the, the, the final three holes of the tournament, uh, what is, uh, what's going through your head? Like you said, you're, you know, you're, you got a great story here. You guys are battling back and forth. You've battled all the way back from down five. You, you've got a lead. He takes one back from you on 16. What's, what's going through your head as you're playing out those final holes? Yeah, so I know I still have the advantage, but I also know it's not over until it's over. Um, I just, I knew I just make 16 need at least a birdie to win the hole. And then 17 and 18. So, I, and then 17 and 18, I'm, I'm just, my goal is just make a par. They're tough birdie holes. So he's, he has to make a birdie to, to beat me on the hole. We both hit the green on, he hit the green first on, on 17. And I followed up by hitting the green. We both two putted for par. It's, that's a pretty tough green. And then on 18, I put it a little bit closer in his approach shot for we both had birdie putts. And when he when he just left his short, then I was told after the round my putt was to tie the course record. But that that wasn't what I was focusing on. I was focusing right. on winning the match. So I just had to get it. I wasn't. I you want to make it, but I barely got it to the hole. You don't want to like blow it by three feet and then have that putt to, to win the hole. I mean, it was, again, you know, I, I wasn't there. I followed along on Twitter, and, and it was interesting. It was, it was on the edge of your seat following on social yeah. media. So I can only imagine what it was like for the people that were there. And, you know, great oh, yeah, It was crazy. Some, some guy was like, who needs the travelers if you can watch this? We both – they – I read stats after the round. Combined the two of us for the 36 holes, we had 20 birdies and two eagles and only six bogeys. So it was – we were definitely feeding off of each other, um, making pots. And, yeah, it was, it was just – it was nuts. That's amazing. Six bogeys is, is a typical round for me in nine holes. And then the other three are usually triple or, or quadruple bogeys. <laughs> so uh, I can appreciate th- those stats, Chris. Chris, so what was your favorite shot? I want to ask favorite shot in your whole career. There's definitely one that stands out to you. At any time, it can be the first time you picked up a golf club. It can be from last weekend. <laughs> Okay, so there, there's a, I'll say a couple. So my actually junior year at Xavier during states, I, I actually it was a 107 yard par three, and 
I got pissed in my in the practice round and broke my sand wedge. So I didn't have a sand wedge during states. And that's what I would have hit on that shot. And I hit a like a little gap wedge and it I, I got a hole in one. <laughs> that was that was that was a funny background story and then that was a really good shot. It spun back into the hole. And then honestly during my my sem no my the quarterfinal match at the Connecticut Am that the 13th hole par three, 200 just under 230 yards. I hit a choked on four iron and it's going right at the hole and you know, it, it like either hit the pin or it lipped out of the hole. And I almost, it was, it was a tap in birdie, but that, that was a crazy shot. That would have been my longest hole in one by like, that would have been double the distance of the one before that. So <laughs> Chris, just awesome. to go back to that, you said 170 yard par three. You had a hole in one. 107. Okay, 107. Yeah, no, I don't hit a gap. I don't hit a. I was gap about wedge. to say. Okay, all right. Yeah, gap wedge, <laughs> sand wedge, 170. That would be that would be impressive. Is that your only hole in one, by the way? I I have a. You could barely call the hole in one at the Apple Nine in middle field. I was like, how old was I? I was probably 11 or 12, and it was like. 90 yards and it went like I hit like I hit a lob wedge or, or something and it went like one bounce two bounces and in <laughs> does anyone here does anyone here anyone here have a hole in one besides Chris no but I, I've witnessed two I've witnessed two other than my two listen to this one so about five or six years ago we we're playing over at Quarry Ridge Greg I know we were talking about this the other day that what, what, what hole was it the fourth fifth that par four the slight dog leg right uh, five, five. All right. So par, par four, the fifth hole, my buddy says he's going to try to clear the trees, ends up going way short of the trees, but catches the cart path, dunk, 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 all the way rolls onto the green and drops. No way. Uh, for, yeah. And then, and then last year, buddies and I, we always take a, a, a trip every single year. And last year we actually went up to Cabot cliffs. Have you ever played there up in Nova no, Scotia? It's incredible, no. Chris. You got to get over there. But on the final day, one of our you know, first time ever hole one on this trip, my buddy hit a it's like the twelfth or thirteenth hole, um, hit a hole in one, and I was in the group. I, I just I tackled him right on the tee box because we saw the ball drop and it was incredible. Yeah, exciting. Congratulations, two hole in ones, and thank you. you know, hopefully, I've witnessed many more. One one was at this tournament I played at in in North Carolina, or is it North or South? I think it's North Carolina. It's called Sedgefield, of course. They play the uh, PGA, uh, the Wyndham Cup there. And this was called the Wyndham Invitational for uh, American Junior Golf Association tournament. And the 16th hole, pond short. And there's like this, this bowl in the front of the green. And then there's like this big shelf on the back front and the, the back left, the whole back of the green. And this kid I played with, he made a hole in one. So that was pretty cool. And then at my home course, one of the guys, one guy that's a member there I was playing with, and it's like 180 yards, and I don't know what he hit. I think it's six iron or something. But we watched it fall in the hole, and it was, it was really cool. It's incredible. You know, it's one yeah. of those things in life you don't see very often, and when you do, they're really special moments, and everybody remembers those. So, Yeah, my, uh, my hole-in-one, I've never had one personally. I've witnessed one, and it was uh, one Tony Jascott, my father, who on a probably about a Dan, were you there for this? I was not there. Oh, it's uh at Indian Springs over in in Middlefield, and it's probably about what 150 yard par three. It's like hole seven. Or... Seventh hole, yeah, it's about 150. 
about 150. Well, my father hit his probably four hybrid on a 150 yard par three. And uh, it was about 12 feet off the ground and it kind of hit the fringe and kind of bounced up and we watched it all, you know, snake all the way up to the, the pin, which was in the back of the green and, and drop. And it was actually quite comical because my father standing there like watching it and we're all, you know, I think it was my brother and one of my brothers and a, a buddy of ours and we're all going crazy. And you, you would have thought my father just hadn't even taken a shot yet. He was just kind of standing there and we all started jumping on him and going crazy. But it's pretty, it is, it is really cool to witness a hole in one. I had one. And I personally, no. I, I don't think I'll, you know, oh, this, this is going to be good, Tanner. Go ahead. Not sure I'll ever even come close, but I had one when I was like 13, I was playing at the old Saybrook mini golf course, <laughs> hole, hole 18, wait, hole 18, hole 18. It was golf. clutch. It was clutch free in round of golf. So. Yeah. In between the two rocks. Yep. Yes. Yep. Yep. <laughs> free round too. So yeah, Chris, watch out. I'm coming for you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it was as impressive as Chris's hole in one. Yeah. Probably more. I don't impressive. know about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, you brought up, you brought up Xavier before and um, I did a little digging before we got on the zoom call and I, I found a, I found a picture I'm going to share with you. New segment, guys. This is a new segment, Chris. It's called. This, I, I believe, Chris, this is you from your freshman year at Xavier. Yeah, that, that was your freshman year. That was freshman year, right? I, think and I wore that tie in three of my. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I guess. I guess the question is simple: is what do you think is going through your mind? This is probably the first week of your freshman year. Probably the first two days of your freshman year orientation, maybe after the Falcon Blast. What what's going through your head? Are you are you nervous about your you know the next four years? Are you excited? What what's going through your head? Probably probably nothing. No, I, I don't know. <laughs> it was uh so I was a late decision freshman year, and I I forget like my name wasn't even on the attendance list and stuff. I, I think I decided like three weeks before school started because I was between going to Xavier and Cobbinshog, and. Yeah, Xavier was the right choice. <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know what's going through my mind. <laughs> I'm probably thinking about that pimple next to my nose. <laughs> uh, no, I thought I I thought I'd share that with everyone. Uh, I, was, I I got a good laugh when I found it earlier, and I thought I'd you know figure I'd ask you what you thought. But no, obviously, you know, it, it was a pleasure getting to know you during your time here, and you know, I know Mr. DeConte feels the same way. Is there anything, you know? throughout your experience at Xavier that you, you know, that you think maybe helped you get to where you are right now? I mean, I like be a man. I think, I think a lot of people have respect for you when you say you, you went to Xavier and you graduated from Xavier, they just kind of like see you as more mature. And I think Xavier did mature me a lot and just you're, teaches you how to be really respectful to your elders. That's great. Dan, you have anything to add or questions to, Add about a Xavier experience? Well, I can just tell you, you know, Chris was talking about his hole-in-one experience, and uh, he shouted out the Apple 9. And I, I can just tell you guys, there was a, a couple years where I was the intramural golf moderator, and we would play over at the Apple 9. We'd get over there at about 3.30. We'd play our round, typical two hours. You're done at 5.30. I'm waiting for all the parents to come pick up their kids and bring them home, and Chris is the last one. I'm like, Chris, is anybody coming to get you? He's like, yeah, they're going to come later. I'm going to go play a few more times. So Chris was, uh, he's definitely been uh, a golf course. I don't know what you, I don't know what you call it for someone who's at the golf course all the time, but Chris has spent uh, 
a lot of hours over at that Apple Nine, and so yeah. I'm surprised he didn't give any credit to his intramural golf moderator for his golf game. <laughs> I guess we'll, we'll let that slide for now. Yeah, I remember Listen. me and uh, John Calavito <laughs> going to play intramural golf. One John Calavito. Chris, a couple well, question, questions for you as we wrap it up. What's next? You know, what's next um, for you? So, yeah, so it's just become official with UVA that I'm, I'm transferring there, officially a who. And, you know, I, I'm probably – I'm looking into other amateur events. My next event on my schedule is actually not an amateur event. It's the Connecticut Open. Um, and I've actually – I've never even attempted to qualify for it in the past. I think it's just conflicted with another tournament I've played in. But, yeah, so I'll sign up for, the qual- for one of the qualifiers at this course great, at Great River where I get lessons from. And – I don't think I'll have to qualify now, now by winning a Connecticut Am. I haven't asked anyone part of the CSGA, but um, I don't think I'll have to qualify. But that's the next one on the schedule. I'll, I'm, I'm looking into, like, different amateur events and stuff around that are pretty good that, I'm, that I could maybe play in. All right, a little rapid-fire question for you right now. What's your favorite golf course that you're looking forward to play one day? Uh, Augusta. <laughs> I'd love to play Augusta. Perfect segue. Okay, now – this is this is my final question uh chris you, if you eventually one day hopefully you uh you find yourself qualifying for the masters and in 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 playing you know against the top competition in the world at the the most uh, obviously sought over sought after uh course if you qualify can you can you save three ticket four tickets for uh for dan greg tanner and myself can i i, I got to assume if you're playing in it, you get some tickets. I've been trying for yeah, years. I, mean, to... I, I assume I can get some tickets. Can you, can you right now on record say, yes, I will figure out a way to get these four guys out here. Probably get press passes now, but, <laughs> but uh, in the event we can't get a press pass, can you, can you promise us that you'll get it if you qualify? Yeah. Yes, I could. I could make that happen. <laughs> All right. We're going to hold on to that sound bite when you're, when you're playing in that, which you will, I, I, uh, a lot of confidence in you. I look forward to finally getting on, on that property and, and watching and cheering you on. Thank you. Anybody else? No, thank you for your time today, Chris. It was great talking to you. Congratulations, and uh, I wish you the best of luck moving forward. Yeah, thank you. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, congratulations, Congrats, Chris. Chris, again. And, and like like Mr. De, uh, Mr. Jascott just said, um, we wish you nothing but the greatest success, and we look forward to following you and your journeys over at UVA. Thank you. You guys going to wish him good luck and congratulations? All right. Good luck, Chris. Thank you. <laughs> good luck, Chris. Thank you. All right. Time to move on to our win, loser draw topic for today. So with, with Chris being on our podcast, I wanted to relate our topic today to our guest. Since we already debated golf in our last episode, Go Tiger. I'm going to change it up just a little bit. You know, we talked about Chris and his golf game and, and golf is very much an, an individual game. You know, he, he talked a little bit about his caddy and at the professional level, you have a caddy and someone to, to talk through. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you still have to, to hit your shot or make your putt. And so golf is one of those games where you can't escape yourself. So my question for you guys is this. In any individual sport or any team sport, what do you think is the best or most impressive individual record in sports history? 
Who's going to kick us off here? I'll go first. I'll, I'll, I'll go first. I actually did a little homework this time. And, you know, when I, when I read the question, what the topic was for this, uh, for the contest this week, I, my immediate thought was to be, well, I'm a, I'm a New York Giants fan. I'm going to go with Eli Manning's streak of NFL games, which was impressive, obviously, but that led me to Calrickin Jr. 2,632 consecutive games played, okay, which was the record broke. Lou Gehrig's record was broken in September of 1998. Okay, here, here's the interesting piece. His 2,632 was 500, just over 500 games more than Lou Gehrig. 502 to be exact, but go ahead. Thank you. And it is also about 1,300 games more than the Everett Scott, who was number three on the list back in the 1916-1925. That's impressive. And, you know, for a player to play that many consecutive games, and when you think about you know, the, the risk of injury, you know, the, the wear and tear on, on, a, on an athlete's body, you know, and when you look at it now and, you know, all the money that these guys are paid, a lot of, a lot of organizations won't let something like that even happen. I mean, the reality is this, currently there is no active player within 2000 games of Cal Ripken Jr.'s record. And that, that's, that's ridiculous. And, I, and honestly, it's a record that will never be broken. I just think that there's, there's so much more, you know, in terms of the, the financial piece from the organizational standpoint I just don't know if any and we'll even come close to that record so that's where I'm going Cal Ripken Jr very impressive all right I'm going to step in for for just a second too and, and Dan I know you're, you're kind of uh leading this this charge here are we allowed to to give any information that would be counter well I, I mean I think I won my argument on the last episode by countering all of you Jordan lovers out there with with other information I just wanted to just double check to make sure that we're, we're on that same page over here. And, and, and Greg, please don't take this the wrong way as well. You know, I know you, you've made mention to that, you know, organizations not allowing this to take place as far as allowing someone to play that many consecutive games. And that is hundred percent true. So I, you know, there's a mismanagement piece for that. The, the, if you just take a quick look at, at Cal Ripken's stats, one would assume if you've played so many consecutive games that they would be at the top of the list as far as appearances in any type of uh, environment like, like that. And I think for Cal Ripken, he's not even top five of all time uh, MLB games played. So, you know, I, I just think just take a, 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 a look at that stat in addition to it. Now, granted he's number eight. It's a, it's, it's, it's quite a feat to play that many contests, but as far as my, my piece was concerned, I went with uh, Byron Nelson, 1945, professional golfer, PGA golfer, and I really didn't know much about him leading up to this point. So right there, in fact, probably say it's not that impressive of a record, but he won 11 straight PGA Tour events, 11 straight. And in, in, I'm just thinking to, to where we are now, you know, obviously Tiger Woods, someone who's, who's you know, played at the highest of levels and, and, and was very successful. He didn't even get to that point where he could win 11 straight events. Looking back at it again now, I mean, we just finished a Travelers Championship here this past week. A lot of the golfers that played in the Travelers Championship aren't even playing in this upcoming week. So to think that, you know, that's not a record that's, you know, this record will never be broken. I don't think anyone will ever win that many consecutive championships that even, quite frankly, have cuts along the way. You have to perform at such a high level. Cal Ripken, I'm sure during those, those, uh, those games, 
had games where he made multiple errors, had games where he didn't get any hits. You know, just showing up and playing is is a feat, yes, on its own, but I don't think it necessarily means that they were, at, you know, competing at such a high level like Byron Nelson was back in 1945. That's, all, that's many, many years ago. My turn, right? So you're right, Cal Ripken. There were games where he didn't get hits because he is not on the hit streak list. I am choosing Joe DiMaggio, 56-game hit streak in 1941. Now, Barstool Sports list hitting a fastball as one of the top 10 toughest things to do in all sports. And that was kind of our inspiration for the show to start um, at least this segment with part of my take. So Joe DiMaggio, he 56 games, he got a hit in. The next closest is, is Willie Keeler in 45 games in 1896 and 97. So that was almost 100 years before that. Um, yeah, hitting baseball is a tough thing to do. He was able to do it in 56 games. I don't think that's anyone's going to come close to that. That's just my opinion. I did do this research 10 minutes ago on Wikipedia, though. So if you guys can prove me wrong, go ahead. Facts, huh? Facts. Listen, you know, I, I, I played baseball growing up. You know, obviously it was Little League, and I think I did Babe Ruth for a season. It, it is very difficult to hit one, hit a baseball, you know. But I, I, I just – I come back to that. Getting a single, winning a World Series are two separate things. Winning championships, you know, getting hits like that. At some point, too, you're facing a, a pitcher who's gone three, four, five, six, seven innings – where they're, they're, they're fatigued and they're exhausted and, and you might have just been going up there. I, I personally think winning 11 champion, winning 11 events consecutive is, is again, a feat that is, is more impressive than that. But that's just my opinion. I, listen, I, I agree with you. That's very impressive, obviously. But can we go back to your counter to my point of playing 2,000? Absolutely. Yeah, go ahead. 2,000 consecutive games? Yep. There are several athletes who play – a ton of games, especially in the game of baseball, there's so many games in the season. What, how is that your counter to playing two thousand over 2000 consecutive games? No, it's just, it's just simply saying that for playing that many consecutive games, right. And just showing up in a sense, because that's what you're doing. You're just showing up to, to play in these games is, is not near, like it, it has nothing to do with, you know, winning and losing here. We're talking about records. Tanner, it's actually performance-based. It's not just showing up in that sense. And I might sound a little bit off with this and, and you know, not You're very – I mean, Cal Ripken Jr.'s hit over 270 for his career. I'm, I mean, I'm looking – I pull up his stats right now. He had over – he had almost 17, 1,700 RBIs. It's I'm not, not trying to take – listen, he's a professional athlete, all right, competing at a very high level. So I'm not taking anything away from Cal Ripken Jr. In fact, this was one of my top – three that I was going to go with as well. I'm just using the argument that for going on that 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 many games consecutively being 502 games ahead of the person who's in second place, you would expect them to be at the top of that list in games played. Absolutely. I'm not taking anything away from it. My my pieces is, is that it's just it, it, it's a great snapshot. I'm sure he came up banged up. I'm sure he was sick. I'm sure he's this. We're talk, but I think we're looking at records here in, in showing up and part in playing in a game is not necessarily qualifying an individual record. Yes. I mean, it's, it's astonishing. It's, it's amazing, but it's not one of the things you're not getting a, a golden glove award for just playing every single game that season. But we, but we, you, we keep using, I, I shouldn't say we, you keep using the word showing up. You're making it sound like he showed up, put the uniform on, <laughs> took a picture at third base and they counted it as a game play. I mean, you probably so thought, I, I, I'm not done. 
you're probably talking about he probably had to go through batting practice, you know, did some infield work, you know, probably had to do work with his trainer, especially late, you know, later in his career as he as the wear and tear started to add up. He didn't just show up. He showed up and prepared to play a professional game, and, and he did that over 2,000 times consecutively. That is, that is as impressive as it gets, in my opinion. And, yeah. and I, again, I think you would have more of a valid argument if he was like a career 200 hitter or, you know, 180 hitter and didn't have the accolades that he does. He has, you know, he performed. You know, until the, you know, maybe the very, very end of his career when he got moved over to third base and he was, you know, slowed down quite a bit at the end of the streak. But he performed at a high level throughout the vast majority of that consecutive game streak. So if I'm not mistaken, if I'm not mistaken, and again, it's nothing against Cal Ripken. It's nothing against his, his ability because he's a professional athlete. He'll always be a professional athlete. He'll, he'll always have this record. Okay, I got I got to step in here. And, and by the uh, way, I, I've argued your both of your guys' points. Maybe not so much Tanner's, but Greg's yours. I've not heard anyone say anything about Byron Nelson in eleven in, uh, winning eleven consecutive golf tournaments. Not one. I'm having a tough time no. saying anything because I still ha- I'm still having trouble wrapping my mind around the fact that we're comparing yeah. a two, over two thousand games consecutively to over two thousand games in an entire career for anyone when they're taking days off when they have like a you know. Uh, a hangnail or something like that. I mean, because that, that's very common. And, you know, a baseball guy, the pitcher has a blister, misses a, you know, misses a start. An infielder has a, you know, rolls his ankle the night before on second base, round in the bag, he's going to miss the next day. I mean, he played over 2,000 consecutive games. Yeah. Does that mean that there's just nobody else on that organization who could give him any type of, uh, no. of, of a struggle for his position? <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm I mean, just trying I, to. Yes, it is the Baltimore Orioles, but I mean, come I, on. You said it, not me. I didn't want to go that far. <laughs> so, as a, if you, okay, let me ask Jess got something real quick. I have two things to say here. Now, if you're talking quarterbacks and your quarterback's in a slump, would, would you ever think about benching a quarterback? Would I consider benching a quarterback? Yeah, if they I just mean, had think, terrible it's, six it's, games. It's tough to it's tough to compare football to baseball because you know and you want to talk about a high school football season. It's typically ten games is a regular season. A ba- a professional baseball season is one hundred and sixty two games. So not this think, year. Correct, not this year. I think they're playing you know five games and you know maybe a three game series at the end. But if we're lucky, and they're going to get you know their full salaries, but it's tough, Tanner. It's tough for me to to answer your question if I just didn't compare the two. I mean, yes, you obviously consider if a kid struggles for consecutive weeks, maybe you consider, you know, making a change. But, you know, there's other factors that play into it. You know, how old is the kid? Are there any other circumstances that are leading to the, the poor performances? But you, you'd like to give, in a 10-game in a football season, you'd like to give a kid an opportunity to work through those struggles, especially if they're a younger kid or, you know, less experienced kid. You know, and on the flip side of that, maybe you have an older kid and someone's pushing them as it is ability-wise you know, that's younger, maybe you do want to try to give that younger kid an opportunity if the older kid is struggling at times. But again, I think there's a lot of different factors that would play into a decision like that. And again, you're talking about a 10-game span as opposed to a 162-game span. Yeah, uh, I'm just saying, though, it's perform. Like, you got to perform to be to keep your spot. you got to perform. Agreed. And, if, yeah. you look at, if you look at uh, Calerkin Jr.'s career, I mean, I, I – his career awards, I mean, you're talking about multiple Silver Slugger awards in the American League, multiple All-Star games, Player of the Year, you know, by the Associated Press, uh, Baseball Digest, Gold Gold Glove Awards, 
uh, no, I'm agreeing with you. I'm, I'm agreeing. I just think Martirelli's being an idiot right now. I'm agreeing with you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like I played travel baseball, you know, throughout high school and I grant I was 300 pounds, but like on a tournament or something, we had four games in one weekend. It was 90 degrees, man. It was tough to DH in four games. So I don't know what Martirelli's <laughs> talking about. I, I'm, I'm, re, I'm repealing my thing. I'm teaming up with Jascot here. And I think, <laughs> wow. I think well, we're going to be, be really candid here too. Then I, I need to say this as well. Before that we got on this, we had a conversation about what everyone's records were just to see if we were going to be duplicating anything. Greg and I had the same exact record. So I'm just trying to – I'm trying to fight for my argument here, right? And, and again, not, not I, I, one of you. Truthfully, truthfully, I don't even remember what your, what your record was anymore because the clear winner of this, Dan Ducati, the clear winner of this is Calrican Jr.'s – You can't say that. You can't, first of all, A, you, you can't tell Dan what he's going to choose here, right? Just like I can't tell you that you needed to go and switch your, switch your record. I, I made the decision to choose to, to, to leave my record of Cal Ripken because, again, I thought it was a, a very solid pick. My argument against it is just, though, it's, it's not, it's not stats-based besides just playing in a game. My, my piece is that this guy showed up 11 consecutive weeks on 11 consecutive golf courses and won every single time, did not get cut, did not stop playing. He made every single appearance his best appearance and, therefore, was awarded 11 championships. He was the low scorer in 11 tournaments. You know, it's, that's, that's impressive. That's impressive. You know, you could go on and look at all these other ones too. Uh, what was it? Dan, hockey player, uh, Gordy Howe. Was it Gordy Howe or Bobby Orr? Six different decades of, of playing in hockey. Gordy Howe. Yeah, six decades. That's, that's impressive. We're talking your, your body is breaking down. You're still able to play hockey at that level, at a professional level. That's a great one. But again, it's not, he's not the leading scorer. He's not the leading, you know, assistant. He's not, he's not at that high level. This guy was at high level, 11 consecutive weeks. Sure. It's a snapshot of a career, but it, it, it's stats based, not just showing up and in, in participating in a game. Well, here, here's a fun fact. Did you know that in 1996 during the all-star game, a Chicago White Sox pitcher slipped and Cal Ripken broke his nose when he fell after the pitcher slipped and played Right sounds after the All-Star break, rejoin the roster. <laughs> sounds pretty clumsy to me, but <laughs> but I'm Tigers not the one who's seven there. Too. Tigers won seven in a row in a time when golf was probably their better golfers. Oh, I don't want to hear this right now. You guys are going to tell wow. me that the golfers yeah, are better in 1945? I think, they're, I think the golfers are better now. Chris yeah, Fosdick could beat that better, guy. They have better technology now for sure. Yeah. Well, how about this argument? How about if Cal Ripken was able to play 2,262, whatever, whatever that status, maybe he wasn't playing his hardest. Maybe he was, he was lallygagging out there, and therefore he, he was able to do that for so long. He, he didn't just imagine, all the energy. Just imagine if they used aluminum bats in the Major League Baseball, how much what his hitting stats would have looked like. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, we can look at this a lot of different ways, Martorelli. And the fact of the matter is this, to play that many professional contests in a row – it is insane and it's it's the fact that there's no active player within 2000 of that record it's it's mind-blowing if ben mcadoo had not benched eli manning for it or for who what kind of giants fan are you if you no, no 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 hold geno's, on it's it's the guy like that geno smith was who was the quarterback who um, went down the wrong way, construction, got arrested during training camp? Oh, that was a kid from uh, Syracuse, I think. 
can't think of his name now. Great Giant fan. You are too, huh? No, no. We got. We have to bring in Kyle McGillis. He'll know right off the top of his head. Backup quarterbacks. Not many people really study the the, the backup quarterback. Kyle McGillis studies the Giants' backup quarterback. He, he always was uh, screaming for Eli Manning's benching. But you know. but answer that question, Greg. I just want to know. Yes, if, if Ben McAdoo did not end his, his consecutive start streak, would your – would your record be different? Well, I, I mean, look, I think from an NFL standpoint, I think that is what Eli Manning did, regardless of the Ben McAdoo situation, is impressive as well. I mean, now, you can also look at that in a different light because of how much more NFL quarterbacks are protected in the current NFL game as opposed to, you know, several years ago where, you know, those guys were teed off on, uh, you know, basically every play. So, I, I yes, I think – what Manning did was obviously very impressive. And I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, but you know, it's a little bit different era of, of NFL football in terms of, you know, how those guys are, you know, the contact that they take. But again, I, my, my biggest issue with your, your counter to my record is that, you know, you, you said that he just showed up, but there's a lot that goes into showing up to play and start a major league baseball game. And I can't speak on it from experience. I never played a major league baseball game, but I got to imagine that there's a hell of a lot that goes into playing any professional sport on a nightly basis, uh, whether it's golf, basketball, baseball, tennis. You know, everyone has their routines. Every every organization has routines that they put those guys through. And, that's, and then you you talk about the wear and tear that that these guys experience on a, on a daily basis, whether it's from practice or from a game. You know, they're they're performing at a high level every night of the week in baseball, realistically, what I mean, will they get a day off again, this year aside, will they get a day off every, you know, six or seven days most of the time? I mean, that's a, that's a lot, you know, that's a, it's a lot of wear and tear on someone's body. And again, I'm not, you know, Listen, the, streak, he, the, the golf streak of 11 consecutive wins. That's, that's very impressive. But as Tanner said, Tiger Woods is a what at seven. Yeah. Was that seven at one point or that the, his yeah. record is seven consecutive. I mean, those are all impressive, but, Again, there's time for their bodies to heal in between tournaments. You know, it's not like they're going from, you know, a, a Thursday through Sunday tournament and then playing the next four days, you know, right after that. You know, there's time for those guys to heal. I mean, those tournaments could have been two weeks apart. You know, so he has time to practice and, and you know, do different things and play rounds in between and, and whatnot. You, you might have to play in Baltimore one night, New York the next, and then fly across the country and play in L.A. You know, and then there you might be a rain, a, a rain out one day, too. You know, I mean – yeah. There's, there's breaks that are that no, again not to, not to take anything away from the the golf but i, I think you, you look at the time between you be know, careful what you're about to say chris fosdick was just our guest right a golfer so don't, don't be very careful what you're about to say listen i'm one of the worst golfers i've ever been around <laughs> i enjoy the game i love the game and again i'm not trying to take anything away from your your record here but i i still think that the you know consecutive cal ripkins consecutive game streak is is the most impressive so how, how does this work? Do I do I bang a gavel or blow a whistle or something when I'm when I'm ready to rule? What's, can what's I, the? Uh... Can I say one more thing? Of course. Nobody has countered my argument yet, so I think that means it's the best <laughs> of the fifty-six game history. Well, you kind of dropped yours though. Yeah, you, no, you, you, you dropped you right. from the race. You did. That was all. <laughs> that was all an act. It's <laughs> all playing that way. I'm shocked that Greg did not pick a Giants or Yankees uh, at all. I'm surprised he went completely the other way here. However, the debate has been awesome. I, I actually don't want it to stop. I'm just happy sitting here listening to you guys debate this. This is phenomenal. Originally, 
I was of the same thinking of Martorelli that, that, that over 2,000 consecutive starts doesn't really sound as great when you compare it to 11 consecutive wins in, in a game like golf. Thank you very much, Dan. Thank you. I accept, I accept this. There, there is no, there's a but here. There is a but here. First of all, Tanner withdrawing his own record to throw his support behind Greg has, has strengthened Greg's argument a little bit. Uh, but the more I thought about it, you know, professional sports, it, it's cutthroat. And so, you know, while you say, yeah, maybe he's got over 2,000 starts and all he had to do was show up, he also had to have the record behind that to, to, to keep his, his status on the team and, and be, in the, be considered to be in the lineup every night. You know, a broken nose at the All-Star game or, or a, a, a sprained ankle running the bases or, or getting beamed by the ball, and, and that guy's in the lineup every night. And so, so while I can appreciate 11 consecutive starts and 11 consecutive cuts and 11 consecutive wins, that's impressive as hell. The fact that Tanner was so moved by Greg's argument to withdraw his own and support up. Greg in, in, in victory, I think I'm going to have to award them each a half a point here and, and, and give oh. the victory to, to Greg and his, his uh, assistant. We didn't talk about point, this being a point system, Dan, and if this is your way to still stay atop of the leaderboard well, listen, without, without sharing it. Well, listen, even if it is points, Martirelli, I just want to let you know that I have one half more point than you do. Yeah, you've also competed in twice, two, two, two of these events. I've only done I've, – I've, this is my first one. Regardless, I'm still a half a point ahead of you, and I can tell you right now that that half a point is going to mean a lot over the next several months. <laughs> uh, I'm, just, I'm just telling you right now that the trophy stands in the advancement office – I don't know what trophy we have, but I'm going to put it up on my shelf. What was your feeling as a Giants fan when Michael Strahan broke the sack record in a single season when he sacked Brett Favre, when Brett Favre kind of laid down for him? What was your, uh, your feeling on that? Who said Brett Favre laid down? Did you call him and ask him if he laid down? Cause well, I'm just, like, just by, by that, that video footage. He, uh, he, he, was, he slipped. <laughs> and... and <laughs> He slipped, and Brett Favre never laid Record's a record, that's all. No, Brett Favre would never lay down. I mean, let's be serious. And that's that's just what the media wants you to believe, that Brett Favre laid down. I mean, come on. Brett Favre had a hard time giving up the game. I can't imagine he'd lay down. Yeah. Brett Favre also, I found an impressive Brett Favre stat. I don't know if I'm going to be able to find it again, but he has, like, some of the most, most interceptions in an NFL career or something like that. Oh, did you Google this, Greg? No, no, I would never. Did you Google it. impressive sports records? No, I Googled Cal Ripken's streak and found information on it. The other one, Dan, I was actually going to try to play into your hand a little bit and go with Wayne Gretzky, some yeah. Wayne Gretzky stat, but I, I, I kept Googling his assist record, but it, I found like three different websites had three different, not numbers, <laughs> but they were like, you know, some old timers that were ahead of them. I, and I don't, so I, I gave up on that one pretty quickly just because I don't know enough about the history of hockey to, to put a solid argument together. Or, I mean, regardless, the Cal Ripken argument was clearly – Victorious yeah. this week this point. yeah i think it was i think it was the broken nose that really sent me over the that top was that that's what sold me on it was that he, he played through a broken nose that somehow he slipped and fell in an all-star baseball no, game. It, was, it actually wasn't during an all-star game it was during the all-star team photo i left that part out because <laughs> i didn't want that <laughs> you didn't want that to do you in? yeah i didn't want to i didn't want to take away from the broken nose so i didn't want anyone to know that it was from during a team photo that the pitcher and the white Sox pitcher slipped knocked him down is that real yeah it was during the photo yes 
<laughs> Dan, and we are still recording, so you could go back to your. I can uh, go back and change my argument. No, 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 no. My decision. No, I think we're going to leave this all in. This banter is good, but I think maybe we can check with Mr. Otterbein. Maybe he was at that All Star game. <laughs> taking taking photos. He might have been. He might have been. <laughs> As we wrap up today's segment and with our words of wisdom, I reflect back on our competition that we had today with win, loser, draw, and specifically the idea of records. All right, both individual and team records. And I have to think to myself that sports has changed drastically over the years, specifically those for high school and youth sports. Because of the pressure to compete at such a high level and chase whatever it is you are chasing. Whether it is fighting for a scholarship or chasing statistics and notoriety, sometimes the fun of the game definitely gets lost. It is more important now than ever to have fun playing sports, especially at the high school level. Some of my fondest memories are growing up are from playing catch with my father in our front yard, to chit-chatting and developing lifelong relationships with my former teammates and coaches. When I get together with everyone, we all reminisce about the times we had in practice and the good times that we had in the locker room. Very rarely does that conversation turn into that play or that game. We need to continue to stress that we need to have fun. It doesn't matter if you're the leading scorer or one that's itching for playing time. You need to let those cards play out. If it's meant to be, it will be. If there is one thing I've learned during this time of uncertainty, it is to enjoy the moment and those you are sharing that time with. Whether you're on the gridiron, at the field, on the court, or at the barn, we hope that you will grab a seat and join us next time on In the Bleachers.